Alrighty. Welcome to the Chip and Gary Tennis Show. Uh, on this edition, we have a very special guest that's probably seen more tennis balls hit and and handled more tennis rackets than any tennis pros. Uh, a man that's been in the tennis game for probably over 60 years by now, uh, Vaughn Baker. Vaughn is a mentor of mine and, and many others. As a matter of fact, when I was at Wilson Sporting Goods in the juniors, he signed me to a free list of a couple of our rackets and bags and uh, thought, thought I was really hot, hot stuff. Vaughn, welcome to the show. How about telling us a little bit about how you got into tennis? Well, thanks. I'm honored to be asked, Gary. That's that's nice that, that you thought of that. I thought of me. Um, so my background is uh, uh, from Salisbury, Maryland, which at, at, a given, at one particular time was considered uh, Tennis USA. And um, it, it was... Uh, the doing of a guy named Bill Root, who uh, I like to tell people, he traded me in for Jimmy Connors, which uh, makes me sound much better than I ever was. But uh, Reardon was a recovering alcoholic from a really wealthy family and moved to Salisbury, um, basically to dry up, I think. And he had been in the military, uh, <coughs> a major in the, in the, in the army. And, um, came down and just started working with some of the uh, uh, senior players in town and started a junior program and uh, within the first year uh, several of us went out and played in the uh, at Forest Hills and the juniors and um, from that point on I was I was wrapped up in playing uh, tournaments and um, and then went on I could never go into college had it not been for a tennis scholarship and went to University of Maryland and um, where we were very fortunate to, to have a good team. Um, there was this left-hander who uh, who uh, hit a forehand like you, and it was a two-handed backhand and a and a wicked serve. A guy named Jimmy Busick, and uh, he was he was in the top. You know, he was probably in the top five in the country. And uh, I never knew that until I, I wrote a book about Salisbury tennis. So here, here you've got fourteen and fifteen-year-old guys, and. and and this one is so good, and he's not telling the others or rubbing it in how good he is. So it's a, uh, it's you know it just says something about uh, growing up in that, you know, in that period. So here I'm working out, and every tournament I play, I'm playing a guy who's nationally ranked, and it just, and, you know, for several of us, and it uh, propelled us to a, a fairly, you know, a good enough level to play uh, uh, college tennis. And we, for one year, we won the end. Uh, Atlantic Coast Conference Championships. Interesting. And and now Bill Reardon was in Salisbury, but was your coach at that time uh, Mr. Royal, or did he come later to Maryland? Uh, so uh, Bill Reardon was, he wasn't really a tennis coach. I was self-taught, um, uh, but he did buy me a subscription to Tennis Magazine, and I would, I would study, study that. Uh, he was, you know, he was a promoter. Uh, Doyle Royal was a coach at Maryland, so uh, it wasn't until my I uh, went away to college did I uh, Doyle Royal become my um, you know my uh, coach there. I believe he's celebrating his hundredth birthday coming up. Oh, I know. I I've lost track of, uh, with Coach, and uh, I called once and got no answer, and then I thought 
I know when I called Clarence Mabry once, and he, and, he, and it just broke my heart because he, he, you know, he was in bed and I mean, you know, ill, and it was right before he passed away. So, I I, I know Coach Will has has been really around the uh, around and and playing and staying active and. But I'm afraid, Gary, I would disappoint him because every time I saw Doyle Royal, he would say, you still owe it to the team to get me some free Wilson rackets. <laughs> <laughs> I bet I bet you had a few people ask you for free rackets in your day. Yeah, but, but Coach Royal was particularly difficult <laughs> because, uh, because I wanted to do all I could, you know, for, you know, for anyone – anyone on the team I always try to keep an eye out when I was working for Wilson for any of the uh, the kids from the middle Atlantic that were uh, you know were playing national tournaments just to uh, you know to make sure they were uh, uh, well received you know exactly exactly so w- when did the transition uh, was it made after college that you went to work for so the then, I, then I went into uh, um Five and a half years in the military, the U.S. military. You have to say that anymore. I guess you have to be <laughs> <That's right. laughs> more specific. And when I got out of the military, I um, and of course there wasn't pro tennis then. I mean, if if there had been pro tennis, I maybe could have been a rabbit on the tour, but I would not have been a threat. But uh, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't really a, a pro tennis. Uh, Element. It was just be. It was just beginning. There was the barnstormers who Jack Kramer and Olin Parks uh, took around the country, uh, and they were professionals. And uh, a lot of your people might not know know about them. And they they would go around and set up in a college um, for a couple of days, and then we on the team would call lines. And uh, that was Hode. I got, and that's when I got to see Lou Hode play and. Uh, uh, Gonzalez played some, Buckholz, uh, uh, some guy, a lefty uh, named Labor. Uh, you know, they, they were they were very very good players, and uh, so that that was who we looked up to for for uh, you know our inspiration and our shot you know shots, and um, and then afterwards uh, after the military, I'm just looking for a job. I got a part time job uh, teaching like so many of us do and uh, worked for a guy named Frank Purdue. And um, I was at, had been in a fighter squadron prior to that, and I remember one day, and Frank's belief was everyone had to start out as what's called a poultry serviceman. That's where you go into chicken houses and you, you kill some chickens and you cut them open, and, uh, uh, yeah, it's a, and people go to go to school to do that and here I was a tennis guy marketing guy and and I'm doing that um, and you know talking with the farmers and, uh, and then one day I, I the, uh, the jets from my uh, squadron fanned out over the eastern shore and came flying over at about 500 feet and the chickens <laughs> the whole chicken house turned into feathers and dust and I thought what the heck am I doing here you know I, I don't I don't like this and um so I was teaching in the on one weekend, and a and a guy uh, came by. And he said he's starting a, um, a, a a court construction company to make tennis courts, and um, I um, I joined him. And uh, Joe Whalen was the it was Joe Whalen's court. Joe had been. He was a professional tennis champion. He beat uh, Tilden, I think, in 1935. 
and so here I'm building tennis courts and uh, came back, you know, where I live, uh, building them. And then one day, and it's really difficult, you know, I'm just trying to learn the business. And one day uh, I go to a meeting and, and some guy, the stockholders came in and they said, well, how's it going? And I said, well, you know, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do it, you know, I, uh, you know, just make it, you've sold, you know, you're making apologies for lack of performance. And uh, I said, you know, these people want four or five coats of uh, a filler to make the courts a little softer, and, and that's expensive, and I'm trying to convince them of that. And then the guy goes, well, who's counting the coats? And I said, well, I am. He says, they're not counting them? Hell, just put one coat down. And I and come come find out they, these guys uh, the mob owned <laughs> this this company. <laughs> oh my so, gosh! So I so I came home and uh, and I had two little girls then and uh, I just said, gee, God, what am I going to do? I've got these um, these little kids and I don't have a job. And the phone rang, Gary. It, it rang. I mean, immediately. And uh, I had a chill down my spine. It was like I was waiting for this big voice to say, hey, Vaughn, this is God. And uh, <laughs> and it was a squeaky voice. And the guy says, he's a personnel guy at PepsiCo, and, he, and, and Pepsi agrees with me. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't remember what that was about, but I had sent a letter to Pepsi and said, you, you know, you guys should be in the tennis business because it is really going to take off. And uh, so the guy called me, he said, we agree with you. We bought Wilson. We want you to report out to Chicago for, for, um, to work for them. And uh, <laughs> so that, that was quite the, quite the experience. And I did. I went out and uh, right prior to, prior to going out, I had been, I was the fourth for, um, a party of uh, another pro and I playing two uh, people from the White House, uh, Nixon's White House. And while I was there, there was a big sign on the court saying donated by Wilson Sporting Goods. Really? So when I went into the interview, I said to the personnel guy, I said, I'd not really like to meet the guy who put the, you know, put the sign up and and organized to support the White House with uh, with tennis. That's That was really neat. And so when I concluded the uh, the interview, I said, you know, I never met the guy that was involved in the in the, the Wilson sign at the White House. And the personnel guy said, you got a job if you want it. You don't have to bullshit us anymore. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And he says, nobody at Wilson knew anything about the sign. And so Pepsi had done it because the uh, chairman of the board was uh, in hot water for his affiliation with Nixon. So he uh, he had taken the Wilson, uh, put the Wilson name on the court instead of uh, Pepsi. Interesting. And, and uh, so I was very fortunate to get, to get the job. Everyone else that they hired uh, was an MBA from Harvard. Uh, they used Wilson as their training ground. And, uh, and when I went in, it was working in what's called the tennis promotion department. And uh, which was really a, a strange name, but that's literally what it was because it was continuation of what Jack Kramer and Olin Parks have been doing, going around the country, uh, promoting and, and developing tennis. And uh, Olin had passed away, so I didn't get to meet him. And uh, a guy named Gene Buick had worked for Olin, and so Buick needed uh, another person to work with him. And so it was Buick 
uh, a fellow named Don Juniman, who a lot of your listeners would have would have known, and Don uh, passed away a few years ago, and uh, and I and we each uh, broke responsibilities up. Uh, so I handled the juniors and all the field testing of, of all the uh, top end products and and the uh, competitive products. That's why I got to know so much about you know the product side of the business. And uh, and Don handled the and I handled the female. Uh, professional players, and then Don handled the college players and the uh, men professionals, and uh, and then Gene Buick worked most closely with the USTA, and um, so that's that was sort of our configuration. To uh, and we really uh, ran. It's a lot of times when we make decisions, we would say. Uh, should we do it or shouldn't we do it? It could be anything. It could be maybe putting some money in into uh, the um, that little uh, uh, pro uh, Florida pro league, or put money into the uh, professional teachers association. And the decision always would say, well, is it good for tennis? If it's good for tennis, it's good for Wilson. And of course, this was something that the Harvard boys found very difficult to, to, to understand that how could we be uh, supportive of something just for the sport, not for Wilson. But we had 80% of the ball business and we had, a, we had 70% of the top end uh, racket business. So it could, you couldn't argue with success. I mean, Wilson had all the players uh, and had... Who were some of those players that you uh, worked with on the women's side? Well, that would have been uh, Billie Jean and, um, uh, <clears throat> and Margaret Court. We talked with her, but uh, she was she had passed her prime. Um, and then Chrissy was coming along. And, uh, in fact, I was working with Billie Jean <clears throat> trying to renew her contract. And she was asking for a lot of money. And she was worth every cent of it. You know, that was a difficult... I had trouble... I had trouble... Uh, negotiating that contract because I knew you know the impact she was having on the uh, consumer and uh, at the same time I was romancing uh, for corporately I was romancing uh, Chrissy to develop the Chris Everett autograph and her contract and, and I always thought Billy Jean was really a trooper because you know I think most people would have kicked me in the butt and sent me packing and here I'm talking to both of them uh, at the same time about their, uh, you know, their contracts and continuation and how much Wilson loved them. And uh, so I have always had great admiration for Billie Jean, much beyond um, just what what she was so gifted on the tennis court. Except we argued about one thing. Billie Jean didn't think she should sign autographs. Really? And uh, yeah, she didn't think she should sign autographs. She said people should be happy with what she does on the court. And I can remember once out in California, it was a tournament got rained out. And we found a field house, and her brother is a was a baseball pitcher, a professional a baseball player. And we were out throwing baseballs and and uh, back and forth. And uh, somehow I I let it go along, and then I said, uh, Billy Jean. Uh, we were 
I really would love for you to sign autographs. Everybody at Wilson would love for you to sign these autographs. It'd be really important. Well, I don't think so. And I said, well, you know, <clears throat> Mickey Mantle is my superstar. And, you know, she signs autographs. I said, but he's really an athlete. And then... <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like that, did she? She didn't like that at all. But you know, the next day, she started signing autographs. How about that? What was she yeah. like back in those days? She was very inquisitive. Uh, you know, if you had, had a conversation with her, you had, you had to deal with about three subjects at the same time. Hmm. And, uh, and, her, and she was not greedy. She was... We were talking about her contract, but she was as as concerned. Gary? Yes. Go ahead. I, I heard it. Yes. Uh, Go ahead. Was as worried about uh, women's tennis uh, being honored as as she was her own contract. Really? So she really she really uh, she really towed the line when it came it came to those things, and uh, and then her husband. Uh, was around in those days, and he he was handling her contract. So I had to spend a lot of time with him, trying to sort things out. And uh, they were just getting started with World Team Tennis, and um, so it was it was a it was a bit of a um, carnival-like atmosphere. But uh, <clears throat> I I hit with her a couple times at um, events where. They were night, you know, late night events, and uh, she was the feature match, and no one was around. So I take her on the back court, and uh, there was no one else around for her to hit with. I'd get a chance to, to warm her up, and uh, that was something special to see how uh, how well she uh, uh, hit and controlled, uh, you know, a ball. It was she was uh, very gifted. That was in the uh, wooden racket days. Now. Uh where were these Jack Kramer rackets? We all loved our Jack Kramer Woods. Where, where were those made? You were the pro staff. Weren't you the pro staff? I, I was the pro the Jack Kramer pro staff, right. There right. were two four, models. Four and, five, four and five eights. Yes, uh, the grips were a little bigger back there. Were people used bigger grips back then. Yeah. But, uh, but so that was... Gary, people would come up to me and, and uh, uh, talk to me. It could be in London. It could be anywhere. And... Uh, uh, Peggy, a couple times, my wife said, um, after I talked to the people, and I would have to remind them what their handle size was and what have you, and they wanted uh, more, you know, more rackets. Afterwards, uh, she'd say, well, who is that? I said, I, I don't know, but <laughs> I know he's a four five eight person. That's funny. That, isn't that funny how the mind can uh, be so uh, surgical uh, for you know, for for things we need, but the uh, pros, the, uh, the rackets were made in the uh, upstate New York in those days, uh, hand been uh, in, a, in a factory in Cortland, New York, and uh, they made the Stan Smith, the Billie Jean King, Chris Everett, uh, the, the Jack Kramer autograph, and the, and the Jack Kramer um, uh, pro staff. And periodically, some others. Tony Trabert had had an autograph. Um, Stan and, Smith. Yeah, and uh, Richie had one, and uh, so the wood. You know, the uh, the factory owned the woods. Uh, the type of wood. There was, I think, as I recall, it was seven types of wood that was used. Um, really. 
where where on the uh, on the hill uh, certain woods were selected for certain rackets. If it was in the bottom, they would be too wet. If it was at the top, they would be they would be too dry. But right in the middle of the the slope of the hill is where the high end wooden rackets the wood was selected. Uh, so there were a lot, and the people in the factories were there were a lot of craftsmen. Uh, it was it was really something, and and uh, I'm a woodworker by by uh, by my enjoyment, and uh, uh, to go in there and smell all these woods, and uh, it was it was a, a beautiful um, uh, time to go up there and watch them all being made. And then there there was a second tier rackets made for what we call the retail trade, but be the department store rackets and, you know, I am um, sporting goods stores. And uh, they would, they might, uh, they, they wouldn't be used by the top end players. So my, uh, Don and I at GMA worked with the top end. Um, we were most concerned with that because that would drive the rest of the business. But the bulk of the business truly was all these other rackets were being made, and they were being made prior to my coming there by uh, in in Belgium by a company called Donet, and uh, um, Spalding uh, had their uh, volume rackets made in uh, in Belgium by a company called Snowbird. And uh, but what had happened in that time period, the Asians were starting to make better and better rackets and um, very good with the finish and uh, the, the business slipped away about 70 1975 the business slipped away from the uh, Europeans and, and drifted over to um, into t- Taiwan and, and that's where uh, uh, those rackets we'll call the the retail trade rackets were um, were um, uh, manufactured I see. What about the what about the tennis balls? So the tennis balls were made in uh, by General Tire. Wilson didn't make make those, and I know I can hear. I, I know some people. Uh, if you're listening to your podcast, uh, people would come to me and say, "Vaughn, Vaughn, tell me." People say the pen makes the tennis ball. Please tell me that uh, Wilson makes her own tennis ball. I said, okay, well, you want me to tell you tennis? Wilson makes her own tennis ball. <laughs> 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 it, it, was, it was the hardest thing to do. But, but in fact, they made them to our specifications. And we did a lot of, that, that one of my responsibilities was all the, the playtesting we did. Maybe you were involved in some of the playtests. And they were very elaborate, very, uh, we had maybe 300 people around the country involved in various levels of, you know, maybe only three or four people would be invo- involved if we made a, a slight change to the ball. But as it became more important, we would get more and more people involved, either in the ball or the racket. So we were very, very, very serious about uh, performance of, of the top end equipment. And uh, so they, those balls were made uh, to our specifications and, uh, uh, and mostly the type felt we used was a more expensive felt and the felt was a combination of, uh, you know, had some wool, had some nylon and, um, 
and then started making the pen uh, and started making the pen balls as well. So they were the they were the two uh, you know, predominantly strong balls. And then uh, there was a Bancroft ball, but it was starting to fade away. Uh, that's what we used. I used as a kid. And then there was the Dunlop, um, and that was uh, that was made in Europe and and brought in. And that durability of the Dunlop ball was my, was a lot better, I thought. You know, so playability for the Wilson, but it didn't have the durability. There was a regular and a heavy duty, uh, trying to help in that area, and the uh, and then the wearability and the durability of the Dunlop. Is Dunlop a was Dunlop originally a tire tire company as well? Yes, yes, yes. I see. So a lot of the tennis ball companies came out of right. Uh, I guess Tire and Dunlop, right? And then uh, when I uh, um, and then General Tire built a factory in Ireland, and uh, they made pen balls and Wilson balls there, and uh, they and we sold them in canned form. The balls made in Europe prior to that were uh, made once a year um every spring they dunlop and slazinger would make the balls they put them in boxes six balls to a box and um and they were not pressurized so by the time tournament season came around uh those balls were uh, you know were on red clay those balls were very very dead and um, I think, if you'll recall, the European strokes were so much different in your day of playing than they are now. And I think it, that was a big part of the big part of the reason was the the heavy ball and um, versus the you know the lighter um, you know the fresher Wilson ball. You know, it's interesting. You're talking about the big tennis racket, wood rackets back in the day, and you mentioned Wilson, you mentioned Spalding. Uh, Spalding, why did Spalding lose favor? Because it was such a huge racket, almost as big or as big as Wilson. Why did they go off the charts? Well, uh, actually, Wilson bought the Spalding factory. That factory I was telling you about in Cortland had been a Spalding factory. And uh, so I don't know the reason I know that I had several contracts with, with um, uh, when I was working uh, in my own consulting business, uh, several times Walding hired me to come in and try to get them back into, um, back into the top end of the market. Uh, but but they became uh, a lot of companies get that way. They had a they had a mass market. Huffy is a good example. They they were the top end of the kids bikes. Um, but when they got started getting pressure from overseas, they thought, well, we'll just cut the price. We'll just cut the price. And you can only cut the price so long. You know, Spalding is, is just a brand. It's not a company anymore. It doesn't even exist as a company. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, and Huffy uh, is also just a brand. It doesn't exist as a company anymore. So uh, instead, of, instead of marketing uh, their strength, they just try to cut price, and uh, which you know, actually anybody with a calculator or a phone can do that. But uh, ultimately, it it fails, and I think that's that's what you know what happened 
with those, you know, with those brands. And it was really hard. I remember um, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Klaus Blavik, uh, Gary, and I made a, uh, he was helping on this project to get Smalling back, and we went to a really important um, store in New York. It was all locked up, you know, had bars, and you, you've probably been to those, and, uh, because of already back in the, in the 80s uh, crime was was a problem and knock 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 on the door and the buzzer rings and i answer and the guy says what do you want and i said well we're we're um, we have a new tennis racket we'd like to talk to you about we think it would be interesting and he said my god i hope it's not a spalding <laughs> <laughs> is that right so, so they really had this uh, they had this bad uh, bad image the people that work there were nice people i i mean i like the people and, uh, but sometimes you know uh, some things can take on their own life and uh, and they did i know that snower was an attempt for one of the attempts for spawning to get back into the high end um that was the company that made their their rackets and um came back at a high end um snower racket uh, I, I remember it was, uh, I can remember the price, but I think Smalling was selling uh, their rackets for a particular model for top end model for $12 at trade. And uh, this was, this was uh, 25 and it, uh, it was the same, ra- you know, the same racket with different cosmetics. And uh, by the end of the first year, Snower was starting to outpace um, Smalling, and that really created problems, um, you know, corporate problems between the Sour people and the Smalling people. So they were, um, you know, they were the kind of problems that uh, people, of course, you know, your people listening would not have known about, but um, it was always a case of, uh, of, I think the company's losing sight of what how they got there. You know, they uh, if, if they had, if they stayed to their knitting and really worried about the consumer having a better product, they probably would still be in business today. Hmm. Tell me about Stanley Stan Penzak. Oh, Stanley, he's he's one of the best. Uh, clearly, he's one of the best tennis players I ever saw. Uh, Not many people and, know about him. No, no. In fact. Uh, he was so good that he decided that he was going to go off and just play everybody left-handed. Uh, he was a right-hander. He was just going to play everyone left-handed. Uh, <laughs> Where was he from? Somewhere in Europe, wasn't he? He was from Poland. Stanley oh. Poland, and he married an Italian uh, a princess. And uh, uh, he would do crazy things here. He would. He was so good that he didn't, really didn't have to concentrate. And uh, <laughs> he didn't have to concentrate. No, he would wear um, a German Piff helmet. You know the old World War One helmet. Oh yeah, with the the big thing sticking the, up on the with top. The spike on the top. Yeah, mm-hmm. he would play in that, and then you know he's when he's fifteen and sixteen. Afterwards, he would take beer and fill it up with beer and drink beer. And, <laughs> in fact, Raleigh Anderson at Kalamazoo uh, started telling uh, telling uh, stories about uh, Stanley. Um, at uh, to some of the other officers in the USTA, and they got so upset they decided they were going to have him uh, ostracized from international tennis play. 
Really? Uh, they, they were so upset with Stanley. You know, he would parachute in and uh, <laughs> land in the land in the umpire's chair and take off and then play. I mean, oh my the, gosh, the guy was really good. John Whitlinger told me that he just, you know, he just wanted to. After he won the. <clears throat> NCAA, he wanted just to, uh, he wanted a piece of of, uh, of Stanley, and when he f- could get a chance, he flew back to Salisbury. That's where Stanley hung around a lot. And uh, when he uh, when he got there, he had just missed him. Stanley had just taken off and left on the prior, well. you know, the prior plane. And so, you know, Stanley, even left-handed, would have gone through you and chipped like you know, like a knife through butter. I, I remember seeing a picture of him in World Tennis, and he was wearing some long trench coat, and he was, I think he got defaulted out of one of the big tournaments. I can't remember the details. Yeah, it, I'm sure he, I'm sure he did. He was, uh, he was quite a character. Probably one yeah. of the one of the the best players that not many people know about. He had a short, he had a short, <laughs> kind of a short-lived career. <laughs> Because uh, in, uh, I was helping Klaus run a, a little four-man exhibition uh, tournament down in uh, Atlanta, and John McEnroe uh, uh, started could 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 make it, couldn't make it. It was one of those kind of things, and uh, so I called Stanley and we we put him in the tournament, and one of the guys said to me. Stanley, he's dead, isn't he? I said, no, 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 he's not dead, but I mean, he can handle these guys even if he's, if he's older, you know, so uh, we put him in, but as it turned out, um, I forgot, uh, I think Michael P- Burnforce came in and, in his place, or uh, I forgot, somebody came in, somebody just came back from Wimbledon. I think Courier was playing in that too, one time. Courier was in that, uh, uh, Michael and... Uh, Oh, I forgot who the fourth was, but uh, so you know, it, we wanted we wanted to stay with the uh, oh Mooster, wasn't Mooster a little? Yeah, Tomas Mooster. That's exactly yeah, who it was. Yeah, yeah. So Vaughn, what about after after your tennis days? What uh, what happened then? Well, uh, you mean after my Wilson days? Yes. Well, you had Wilson, you had Wimbledon tennis rackets, and Spalding right. tennis right. rackets, where you consulting right. and so Wilson Prince. President Wilson asked me, Gary, to go to Europe, and if, uh, he was a, this was a great guy, and he said, listen, I want you to think out of the box, I want you to go to Europe and figure out how we should go to market in Europe, you know, how we should do it, um, think out of the box, don't get caught up in the way everybody else does it, and that's what I did, and the first thing I did was the tennis ball, uh, because the ball was being made in cans, and uh, I was convinced that European would like the can ball, a fresh ball, as opposed to the the dead box ball. And uh, I can remember a guy from the from Dunlop, and he was uh, an official in the European tennis industry. And he came to me and says, "You are going to have to pay us five dollars for every ball you you buy." And and uh, I went well. Why do I have to do that? Because that's the only way you're going to get them on the market. And I said, well, I love a challenge, so I'm not going to pay you the $5. And I'm just going to avoid your organization. And uh, I went uh, down, and all, all of the uh, 
my strategy was to go down to all of the resorts in Spain and Canary Islands and uh, Italy and and get the ball introduced there. So when the all the European tennis players went south for the you know for their vacations, they would suddenly have the can tennis ball. Hmm. And today, and today, that is the only way the ball is sold. Uh, you know, in in Europe. So uh, it, again, it just speaks to uh, if you think in terms of something for the consumer, everything else follows. Why did the why did the cans change from metal to plastic? It just cost. Cost. You know, the biggest, biggest part of the tennis ball, uh, a can of three, is the can. Oh, I see. It's more expensive than the three balls. Yeah, it's more expensive than three balls. Huh. Huh. Well, that's and, interesting. What What about uh, uh, Jimmy Connors? Did you have any run-ins with him when he was using well, wrestling? So Connors, Connors was. Uh, Bill Rigg was his manager, and Connors was, uh, so I knew I knew Connors through Reardon, but he was the charge of uh, Don Juneman. And, uh, but when Juneman and I would go to tournaments, I might go in the first half, he'd come in the back half, or vice versa. So we knew each other's players, you know, well, knew what the requirements of the players. So, you know, what would a, a Baker or a Juneman do at a tournament? I guess we should say first. And that would be, were the guys standing there looking like, uh, like we're important? Uh, just letting all the players know where we are. But we weren't, uh, like back slappers or, you know, that type thing. We were, uh, I just wanted every player to know where I was, and uh, if they needed me, uh, they'd get word to me. And, uh, um, you know, the rest of the time I would talk to people in the trade, people in the business, coaches, and just sort of say, you know, what, what was going on. So, so Jimmy I knew, uh, you know, that way, and then he got romantically involved with Chris, so uh, sometimes they give me little love notes to hand back and forth. And, um, <laughs> So, you know, just, you know, just, um, so I knew him from that, but I, I liked Connors. Uh, I think what we, a lot of, I looked a little bit like him back then, certainly not now. A lot of people come up and say, are you his brother? And I say, no, no, I kid it. He doesn't have anywhere near the money that I have, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, so we had a lot of fun, but I, it was interesting for your listener is I took the T3000 to Connors. And I, there was a lot of pressure on me. I had run the testing on the T3000. I think maybe you even tried a T3000. Um, did all the testing. Uh, it was it was uh, a stiffer uh, a racket. And uh, I took it to Connors, and Connors came with it, and they gave it back. And the pressure was on me to ask him if he wanted to use it. <laughs> He said, ah, Lauren, I'm number one in the world with the T2000. Why would you want me to change? Oh, Jimmy, that's a great question. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's a hard question to answer. I said, I, I, said, I got a lot of, I got a lot of pressure on me uh, to ask you that question, and uh, and I love your answer. And uh, so, what what happened with the T2000? That was Renee Lacoste invention. Right. Right, and, uh, one of the four French uh, four musketeers back in right. the 2030s. One of the four musketeers, and I took on one of my trips over. I took him his million dollar plus uh, royalty check, and he treated me really nice. 
<laughs> but he was a really he was a gentleman and uh, uh, he just said listen Vaughn uh, you have trouble in Europe uh, you can always call me and I can make I can make your life better I can make <laughs> something like that but the uh, the T two thousand they did a they did a running change in manufacturing on the on the T two thousand and it was really something small Gary God it was it was so small. And Connors could feel the difference. And um, it, it just amazed me that his ability to detect uh, something this small. Um, so he had such great feel for the ball and, and impact that. Uh, and then when his mother got him off on, on another aluminum racket, I think, although he played well and he was older, it, I think it probably uh, retarded you know, retarded. What he, you know, he might have been been around uh, like Roger Federer a little longer had he not done uh, an equipment change. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Vaughn, thanks for visiting with us today. That's uh, interesting. I hope to get you back on and we can talk a little further about. Uh, Thank you, Gary. I'm, I'm honored. It was it was fun to talk. Uh, uh, I got to ask you a question. Are you playing pickleball yet? I am playing pickleball, and I'm playing it every day. I I kind of uh, wonder what's going on because I've played, oh, probably eight out of the last 11 days. I go over to the park here a half mile away, and uh, there's four tennis courts there, and then there's four pickleball courts. And every day I've driven by the tennis courts, and there's never been a soul on any of those tennis courts. And they're nice tennis courts, a nice school. And then you get to the four pickleball courts, and the courts are taken with 16 players. And there's another 10 or 12 waiting around to play yeah. when the game's over. So I'm wondering, uh, because it seems like pickleball, I know it's the fastest-growing sport in America right now, uh, but it just seems like it's taken over, and I can see why. It's, it's fun. It is a lot of fun, and, and people. it's easier for people to pick up. Than tennis yeah, is. you're right. You're right. It's the same reason the Prince tennis racket took off because it uh, it made the game easier. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wish the tennis world wasn't fighting. Uh, I love tennis, so uh, you can hear hear it probably in my voice. So it's a shame the tennis world's been fighting pickleball because I think a lot of these kids, if they learn pickleball, would then step up and start playing. Uh, they'd want to go to the next step and become tennis player, and they know how to volley. Um, the kids, these young kids, don't know how to volley the, the way the game's being That's taught. That's true. Today. That's true. That's interesting because you don't see a, many kids playing pickleball, and, and of course, down here in Florida, it's almost all senior citizens playing. But right, uh, right, right. but but kids should be playing pickleball, I think. And uh, you know, and you're right. It would it, actually, I think there's. Tennis is actually picking up a little bit for that reason you mentioned, according to one pro was telling me, because of people that never played tennis before played pickleball, and after a while they just started playing tennis. So that's interesting. One last thing before we go, now that you've brought this up, because the game was just totally revolutionized when when the oversized racket came in. Why don't you finish up and tell us how that came about? So, um, so I told you I introduced uh, Snowert, and then uh, I uh, I got involved with uh, um, just you know, doing nothing for a little bit of time. And Howard Head uh, tracked me down and said, "Now, who is Howard Head?" 
I'm sorry, Howard Head uh, was the uh, inventor of the uh, head ski, and, the head, and then the uh, head uh, tennis racket came along after he sold the business as a continuation of that. And then Howard invented the, um, he bought the company that made the ball machine, and then he invented the, uh, the he, was, he was a terrible athlete, and uh, he kept thinking it was the equipment. So he invented uh, the oversized uh, classic tennis racket. And uh, he, he went out of his way to track me down, and so I, should, I was complimented by it, and he asked me if I would be interested in being his promotion guy. So for your listener, the promotion guys get, guys go around to the tournaments and try to get players to use their equipment and what have you. And um, I said, um, no, but what I'd like to do is, um, I said, I don't think you have a, a racket. Howard, I, I, you know, I, I got to believe in a racket. And he sent me uh, some of the Prince Pros. And I went, now that, and that was an aluminum racket, but it, a lot of thought had gone into the weight and the balance and what have you, and the flexibility. So um, I said, I'll do that. Uh, and, he, and I said, but you already got a good promotion guy. The problem is, he says, well, he's not getting me any players. And I said, because well, he doesn't have any equipment to give them. Nobody wants to play with a classic, except for Pam. She 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 liked it. And I said so. You need to ha- you, getting players will be easier once you get a, some equipment. So no, no no wealthy guy likes to be told that. But he said, hey, I think you're right. And will you help me? So I went. I took six of those Prince Pros. I went overseas and met some of the people that they had already signed up. Fired some of those people that had. Uh, uh, we're buying counterfeit rackets, and that was that was quite it was quite a messy situation. But over the six years, we doubled uh, racket sales every year for six years. And what was happening? I I look back. What was happening? It, it was all changing then. Uh, I can remember once a Dunlop to appease their, uh, they tried to write off their inventory and the uh, insurance and, and put it on the insurance company. So the insurance company made them, and they had they, they had to burn something like twenty five thousand rackets. Yeah. And uh, and there were other factories in Europe. People would ask me to go and look, and I'd go and look, and, and uh, they make a sweetheart deal for me to to join them. But what was happening is no one wanted to, you know the the. The tennis market was was shrinking, um, but it wasn't shrinking for Prince because the, the experience with the oversized racket was working. People were getting more balls back. They were performing better, and um, a lot of I mean, Gary, if I had a nickel from all the experts that told me that Prince would never sell, I would be a hell of a lot better off financially. And, and all, all the experts told me wouldn't. Um, and top players told me it wouldn't work. But top players don't buy equipment. They're given equipment. You know, I was more concerned about the people that buy it yes. and what their expectations were. And um, and we, um, when I say we, is it, it was a U.S. effort and effort overseas. And the U.S. guys said we we were we could learn from what what was working and what wasn't working, and we could try different things. And um, that that was a, a phenomenal business until Howard and Howard sold it, and um, it, you know it, it 
Um, I think it sort of, um, and it sort of started leveling off. And I don't know the status of Prince today, but Wilson finally came back. One of my greatest compliments ever was when I was, uh, no one knew who, uh, what I was doing, or they, a lot of people thought I was in the uh, uh, smuggling rackets over in, in what was called the gray market. And I never been one to talk a lot about what what my business was. And um, but two two meetings uh, took place that told me something was changing. Uh, first was with Guy Pinelay. Guy Pinelay was the general manager of Donay, and um, I sat with him the night before he signed a contract with Borg um, to play with the Borg, you know, wooden racket. And um, in that contract, I said, Gee, I said, um, I think you made your mind up. I said, but just think in terms of how many of these rackets you have to sell to pay for his contract. And uh, he looked at me and he said, if I fail at this, I have a whole town of people that will be without work. I owe it to the people in the town. Uh, we've grown up there. They're my friends. They're my relatives, and we have to we have to be successful at this. Mm. And uh, and I went, oh my gosh, you know, it, that's when I realized that okay, it was a Dunlop thing. It's a, yeah. anyway, so they 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 went out of business. Uh, Snowart went out of business. All the wood guys went out of business, and the oversized rackets were being uh, there were new ones being added. And uh, a guy named Kunan Lu got involved making them. They took the the factory the production out of the U.S. and took it over to Taiwan. And it was in Taiwan that uh, they're really starting to to make these uh, make these, and it and it really changed um, it changed the world i know mcenroe talks about well it's a shame we couldn't get back to wood but to do that you would have to you'd have to grow forest first and then you would have to um retool all that equipment's been just destroyed all the manufacturing equipment that would all have to be replaced hmm. but it changed it changed uh, klaus and i played in the 45s when i was 65 in that 20 year period um, style of play had changed and uh, it was unbelievable to suddenly see all of that topspin uh, open open face topspin coming when you hadn't seen it um, you know and uh, uh, so the game had changed so much uh, and, and it all changed because of the the, the change of these uh, this Howard had designed racket, and that all changed. That all happened maybe in a period of six years. Yeah, everybody had a little, what is now considered a very little head, and then Howard Head said, "Well, there's no rule that says how big the head of the racket should be," and so it it did. It just totally transformed the whole game of tennis. Well, it was 77 square inches, Gary, versus uh, 110. Mm -hmm. So it gives you an idea of how, you know, what the magnitude of a change was. Interesting. Well, Vaughn, thank you for your time. We're going to do it again, and we'll tee it up again when Chip Hooper's around, and he might have some special questions for you about Stanley's Stan Pinsett. Make sure Chip knows it's Stanley that could beat him, not me. (laughs) (laughs) I think Stanley could beat a lot of people. 
Vaughn, thanks for your time, and we'll see you around the block. Okay. Thank you, Gary. Bye. All righty. Bye-bye.